Welcome to the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated by Dr. John Owen. We will be continuing to read from page 151 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourselves to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now, to SWRB's reading of the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come unto the Father, but by Him. John 14, verse 6. Bracket number 3. With respect unto the declaration of it by a special revelation. This we may call God's making or establishing of it, if we please. Though making of the covenant in Scripture is applied principally, if not only, unto its execution or actual application unto persons. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 5 Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 40. This declaration of the grace of God and the provision in the covenant of the mediator for the making of it effectual unto his glory is most usually called the covenant of grace. And this is twofold. First, in the way of a singular and absolute promise. So was it first declared unto and established with Adam and afterwards with Abraham. The promise is the declaration of the purpose of God before declared or the free determination and counsel of His will as to His dealing with sinners on the supposition of the fall and their forfeiture of their first covenant state. Hereof the grace and will of God were the only cause. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8 And the death of Christ could not be the means of its procurement for He Himself and all that he was to do for us was the substance of that promise. And this promise, as it is declarative of the purpose or counsel of the will of God for the communication of the grace and glory unto sinners in and by the mediation of Christ, according to the ways and on the terms prepared and disposed in his sovereign wisdom and pleasure, is formally the new covenant, though something yet is to be added to complete its application unto us. Now, the substance of the first promise, wherein the whole covenant of grace was virtually comprised, directly respected and expressed the giving of him for the recovery of mankind from sin and misery by his death, 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Wherefore, if he and all the benefits of his mediation, his death, and all the effects of it be contained in the promise of the covenant, that is, in the covenant itself, then was not his death the procuring cause of that covenant, nor do we owe it thereunto. Secondly, in the additional prescription of the way and means whereby it is the will of God that we shall enter into a covenant state with him or be interested in the benefits of it. This being virtually comprised in the absolute promise. For every promise of God does tactically require faith and obedience in us is expressed in other places by way of the condition required on our part. This is not the covenant, but the constitution of the terms on our part, whereon we are made partakers of it. Nor is the constitution of these terms an effect of the death of Christ, or procured thereby. It is a mere effect of the sovereign grace and wisdom of God. The things themselves, as bestowed on us, communicated unto us, wrought in us by grace, are all of them effects of the death of Christ, but the constitution of them to be the terms and conditions of the covenant is an act of mere sovereign wisdom and grace. God so loved the world as to send His only begotten Son to die. Not that faith and repentance might be the means of salvation, but that all His elect might believe, and that all that believe might not perish, but have everlasting life. But yet it is granted that the constitution of these terms of the covenant does respect the federal transaction between the Father and the Son, wherein they were ordered to the praise of the glory of God's grace. And so, although their constitution was not the procurement of his death, yet without respect unto it, it had not been. Wherefore, the sole cause of God's making the new covenant was the same with that of giving Christ himself to be our mediator, namely, namely, the purpose, counsel, goodness, grace, and love of God, as it is everywhere expressed in the scripture. Brackets number four. The covenant may be considered as unto the actual application of the grace, benefits, and privileges of it unto any persons, whereby they are made real partakers of them or are taken into the covenant with God. And this alone in the scripture is intended by God's making a covenant with any. It is not a general revelation or declaration of the terms and nature of the covenant, which some call a universal conditional covenant, on what grounds they know best, seeing the very formal nature of making a covenant with any includes the actual acceptation of it and participation of the benefits of it by them, but a communication of the grace of it, accompanied with a prescription of obedience, that is God's making his covenant with any, as all instances of it in the scriptures do declare. It may be, therefore, inquired, what respect the covenant of grace has unto the death of Christ, or what influence it has thereunto? I answer, Supposing what is spoken of his being a surety thereof, it has a threefold respect thereunto. First, in that the covenant, 
as the grace and glory of it were prepared in the counsel of God, as the terms of it were fixed in the covenant of the mediator, and as it was declared in the promise, was confirmed, ratified, and made irrevocable thereby. This our apostle insists upon at large. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 15 to 20. And he compares his blood in his death and sacrifice of himself unto the sacrifices and their blood whereby the old covenant was confirmed, purified, dedicated, or established. Verses 18 and 19. Now, these sacrifices did not procure that covenant or prevail with God to enter into it but only ratified and confirmed it and this was done in the new covenant by the blood of Christ secondly he thereby underwent and performed all that which in the righteousness and wisdom of God was required that the effects fruits benefits and grace intended designed and prepared in the new covenant might be effectually accomplished and communicated unto sinners. Hence, although he procured not the covenant for us by his death, yet he was in his person, mediation, life, and death, the only cause and means whereby the whole grace of the covenant was made effectual unto us. For, thirdly, all the benefits of it were procured by him, that is, all the grace, mercy, privileges, and glory that God has prepared in the counsel of His will that were fixed as unto the way of this communication in the covenant of the mediator and proposed in the promises of it are purchased, merited, and procured by His death and effectually communicated or applied unto all the covenantors by virtue thereof with others of His mediatory acts. And this is much more an imminent procuring of the new covenant than what is pretended about the procurement of its terms and conditions. For if he should have procured no more but this, if we owe this only unto his mediation, that God would thereon or did grant and establish this rule, law, and promise that whoever believed should be saved, it were possible that no one should be saved thereby. Yea, if he did no more, considering our state and condition, it was impossible that anyone should so be. To give the sum of these things, it is inquired with respect unto which of these considerations of the new covenant it is affirmed that it was procured by the death of Christ. If it be said that it is with respect unto the actual communication of all the grace and glory prepared in the covenant and proposed unto us in the promises of it, it is most true. All the grace and glory promised in the covenant were purchased for the church by Jesus Christ. In this sense, by his death, he procured the new covenant. This, the whole scripture, from the beginning of it, in the first promise unto the end of it, does bear witness unto. For it is in him alone that God blesseth us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly things. Let all the good things that are mentioned or promised in the covenant expressly or by just consequence be summed up 
and it will be no hard matter to demonstrate concerning them all, and that both jointly and severally, that they were all procured for us by the obedience and death of Christ. But this is not that which is intended. For most of this opinion do deny that the grace of the covenant in conversion unto God, the remission of sins, sanctification, justification, adoption, and the like, are the effects or procurements of the death of Christ. And they do, on the other hand, declare that it is God's making of the covenant which they do intend, that is, the contrivance of the terms and conditions of it, with their proposal unto mankind for their recovery. But herein there is uden huges, for, parentheses number one, the Lord Christ himself, and the whole work of his mediation as the ordinance of God for the recovery and salvation of lost sinners is the first and principal promise of the covenant. So, his exhibition in the flesh, his work of mediation therein, with our deliverance thereby, was the subject of that first promise, which virtually contained this whole covenant. So, he was of the renovation of it unto Abraham when it was solely confirmed by the oath of God, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And Christ did not by his death procure the promise of his death, nor of his exhibition in the flesh, or his coming into the world that he might die. Parentheses number 2. The making of this covenant is everywhere in the scripture ascribed, as is also the sending of Christ himself to die, unto the love, grace, and wisdom of God alone. Nowhere unto the death of Christ as the actual communication of all grace and glory are. Let all the places be considered where either the giving of the promise, the sending of Christ, or the making of the covenant are mentioned either expressly or virtually, and in none of them are they assigned unto any other cause but the grace love, and wisdom of God alone, all to be made effectual unto us by the mediation of Christ. Parentheses number three. The assignation of the soul and of the death of Christ to be the procurement of the new covenant in the sense contended for does indeed evacuate all the virtue of the death of Christ and the covenant itself. For, first, the covenant which they intend is nothing but the constitution and proposal of new terms and conditions for life and salvation unto all men. Now, whereas the acceptance and accomplishment of these conditions depend upon the wills of men, no way determined by effectual grace, it was possible that, notwithstanding all Christ did by his death, yet not one sinner might be saved thereby but that the whole end and design of God therein might be frustrated. Secondly, whereas the substantial advantage of these conditions lies herein, that God will now, for the sake of Christ, accept of an obedience inferior unto that required in the law, and so as that the grace of Christ does not rise up all things unto the conformity and compliance with the holiness and will of God declared therein, but accommodate all things unto our present condition, 
Nothing can be invented more dishonorable to Christ and the gospel. For what does it else but make Christ the minister of sin and disannulling the holiness that the law requires or the obligation of the law unto it without any provision of what might answer or come into the room of it but that which is incomparably less worthy nor is it consistent with divine wisdom, goodness and immutability to appoint unto mankind a law of obedience and cast them under the severest penalty upon the transgression of it when he could, in justice and honor, have given them such a law of obedience, whose observance might consist with many failings and sins. For if he had done that now, he could have done that so before, which, how far it reflects on the glory of the divine properties, might be easily manifested. Neither does this fond imagination comply with those testimonies of Scripture that the Lord Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That He is the end of the law, and that by faith the law is not disannulled, but established. Lastly, the Lord Christ was the mediator and surety of the new covenant, in and by whom it was ratified, confirmed, and established. And, therefore, by Him, the constitution of it was not procured, for all the acts of His office belong unto that mediation, and it cannot be well apprehended how any act of mediation for the establishment of the covenant and rendering it effectual should procure it. Number seven. But to return from this digression, that wherein all the precedent causes of the union between Christ and believers, whence they become one mystical person, do center, and whereby they are rendered a complete foundation of the imputation of their sins unto Him, and of His righteousness unto them, is the communication of His Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells in Him, unto them, to abide in, to animate and guide the whole mystical body and all its members. But this has of late been so much spoken unto, as I shall do no more but mention it. On the considerations insisted on, whereby the Lord Christ became one mystical person with the church, or bear the person of the church in what he did as mediator in the holy, wise disposal of God as the author of the law, the supreme rector or governor of all mankind, as unto their temporal and eternal concernments, and, by his own consent, the sins of all the elect were imputed unto him. Thus, having been the faith and language of the church in all ages, and that derived from and founded on expressed testimonies of Scripture with all the promises and resignations of His exhibition in the flesh from the beginning cannot now, with any modesty, be expressly denied. Wherefore, the Socinians themselves grant that our sins may be said to be imputed unto Christ and He to undergo the punishment of them so far as that all things which befell him evil and afflictive in this life, which the death which he underwent, were occasioned by our sins. For had we not sinned, there had been no need of, nor occasion for, his sufferings. But notwithstanding this concession, they expressly deny his satisfaction, 
or that properly he underwent the punishment due unto our sins, wherein they deny also all imputation of them unto him. Others say that our sins were imputed unto him, non-English words. But I must acknowledge that unto me this distinction gives non-English words. The substance of it is much insisted on by few ardentius, and he is followed by others. That which he would prove by it is that the Lord Christ did not present himself before the throne of God with the burden of our sins upon him, so as to answer unto the justice of God for them. Whereas, therefore, reates or guilt, may signify either non-English words or non-English words, as Bellomine distinguishes. With respect unto Christ, the latter only is to be admitted. And the main argument he and others insist upon is this, that if our sins be imputed unto Christ, as unto the guilt of the fault, as they speak, then he must be polluted with them, and thence be denominated a sinner in every kind. And this would be true if our sins could be communicated unto Christ by transfusion, so as to be his inerrantly and subjectively. But their being so only by imputation gives no countenance unto any such pretense. However, there is a notion of legal uncleanness, where there is no inerrant defilement. So the priest, who offered the red heifer to make atonement, and he that burned her were said to be unclean. Numbers chapter 19 verses 7 and 8. But hereon they say that Christ died and suffered upon the special command of God. Not that his death and suffering were any way due upon the account of our sins or required in justice. Which is utterly to overthrow the satisfaction of Christ. Wherefore, the design of this distinction is to deny the imputation of the guilt of our sins unto Christ. And then in what tolerable sense can they be said to be imputed unto him? I cannot understand. But we are not tied up into arbitrary distinctions and the sense that any are pleased to impose on the terms of them. I shall therefore first inquire into the meaning of these words guilt and guilty whereby we may be able to judge what it is which in this distinction is intended. The Hebrews have no other word to signify guilt or guilty, but a sham. And this they use both for sin and the guilt of it, the punishment due unto it, and the sacrifice for it. Speaking of the guilt of blood, they use not any word to signify guilt, but only say, not English words, it is blood to him. So David prays, deliver me from blood, which we render blood guiltiness. Psalms 51 verse 14. And this was because by the constitution of God, he that was guilty of blood was to die by the hand of the magistrate or of God himself. But Asham is nowhere used for guilt but it signifies the relation of the sin intended unto punishment, and other significations of it will be in vain sought for in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he that is guilty is said to be hupadikos, Romans chapter 
3, verse 19. That is, obnoxious to judgment or vengeance for sin. One that, hey, dike, zain, uk, easin, as they speak. Acts chapter 28, verse 4. Whom vengeance will not suffer to go unpunished. And, inoxos, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. A word of the same signification. Once by, aphelo. Matthew chapter 23, verse 18. To owe, to be indebted to justice. To be obnoxious, liable unto justice, vengeance, punishment for sin, is to be guilty. Reos, guilty, in the Latin, is of a large signification. He who is non-English words is called reos. Especially every sponsor or surety is reos in the law. Non-English words. He is reos who engages himself for any other as to the matter of his engagement. And the same is the use of the word in the best Latin authors. Non-English words. That every captain should so take care of the station committed to him, as that if anything happen amiss, it should be imputed unto him. And the same author again, non-English words, should be guilty of the fault of another by imputation and suffer for it. So that in the Latin tongue he is reus, who for himself or any other is obnoxious unto punishment or payment. Rietas is a word of late admission unto the Latin tongue and was formed of reus. So Quintilian informs us in his discourse of the use of obsolete and new words, non-English words, to which he adds non-English words and some others, then newly come into use. But Rietas, at its first invention, was of no such signification as it is now applied unto. I mention it only to show that we have no reason to be obliged unto men's arbitrary use of words. Some lawyers first use it, non-English words, a fault exposing unto punishment. But the original invention of it, confirmed by long use, was to express the outward state and condition of him who was reus, after he was first charged in a cause criminal, before he was acquitted or condemned. Those among the Romans who were made rei by any public accusation did betake themselves unto a poor, squalid habit, a sorrowful countenance, suffering their hair and beards to go undressed. Hereby, on custom and usage, the people who were to judge on their cause were inclined to compassion. And Milo furthered his sentence of banishment because he would not submit to this custom which had such an appearance of pusillanimity and baseness of spirit. This state of sorrow and trouble, so expressed, they called reactus, and nothing else. It came afterwards to denote their state, who were committed unto custody and order unto their trial, when the government ceased to be popular, wherein alone the other artifice was of use, and if this word be of any use in our present argument, it is to express the state of men after conviction of sin, before their justification. That is, their reatus 
The condition wherein the proudest of them cannot avoid to express their inward sorrow and anxiety of mind by some outward evidences of them. Beyond this, we are not obliged by the use of this word, but must consider the thing itself which now we intend to express thereby. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc., that SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.